You are listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support from the Society for Freshwater Science. Hello, I'm your podcast host, Erin Larson, with the Society for Freshwater Science, and my guest today is Amanda Sabaleski, a postdoc with the Cary Institute for Ecosystem Studies. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so to start with, I was wondering if you could tell us briefly about your research and what makes you so excited about it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm broadly interested in the way that animal movement and behavior can influence whole ecosystem function. And I study this in a river in East Africa, the Mara River, and I'm interested in the role of large wildlife in transporting carbon and nutrients from the terrestrial landscape into the aquatic system and what that does to the river ecosystem. Awesome, what got you started working in the Mara? Um, I had a background as a wildlife ecologist and I was getting more interested in understanding what wildlife behaviors do to the ecosystems that they live in. And after I finished my master's research, I sought out an opportunity to work more in river ecosystem function. And I worked for the, um, a project through Florida International University studying environmental flows in the Mara River. And one of the key things that I found when I was working there was that the large wildlife had a really important influence on the river ecosystem. And we would actually see remarkable declines in water quality as the river entered the region where the wildlife were, which was opposite of what we expected. We expected to see the river kind of maybe impacted by human presence, but then recover once it entered the protected areas. And what we saw instead was what we think of as traditional indicators of water quality declined when the river entered the protected areas. And this seemed pretty clearly linked to the influence of large wildlife. And so I decided that I wanted to study that in more detail. Awesome. And so what were some of those indicators of water quality that you saw declining when you entered the reserve? Uh, Turbidity goes Mm -hmm. up, so the Mm -hmm. amount of um, dirt in the river, uh, suspended solids. Conductivity goes up, which is um, often considered an indication of pollutant load or contaminant load in the water. And dissolved oxygen um, goes down pretty remarkably, particularly when the flow levels decline, which we've now linked to the um, settling and decomposition of hippofeces on the bottom of the river. Oh, cool. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? So you had a recent study out, too, in addition to your studies on hippos, looking at wildebeest drownings mm-hmm. um, and how they influence the river ecosystem function in the Mara. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that study and how that came about. Yeah. Um, there has been, of course, the Pacific salmon work is mm-hmm. famous work studying the influence of animal carcasses in river ecosystems, but there aren't a lot of natural river ecosystems anymore where this happens, where you see the large abundance of animal carcasses yeah. in the river. And um, early on when I started working in the Mara, we would see occasionally rafts of wildebeest carcasses piled on the banks of the river. And it struck me as um, really unique and a really exciting opportunity to, to investigate what the influence of large ungulate carcasses could be in a river system. And the Mara is um, particularly unique because we have these two different forms of animals um, moving resource subsidies into the river system. You have hippos, which are doing this daily feeding migration and feeding in the grasslands and then defecating and urinating in the river every day. And that's one kind of input and probably has um, certain kinds of ecosystem effects. But then you have this occasional um, periodic pulse of wildebeest carcasses going into the river during these mass drowning events. 
And it seemed like a really unique opportunity to study these two different forms of input and what they do to the system. What was the most surprising thing you think you found during your wildebeest study? Was there something that, you know, did you expect to find a certain impact that they had on the river and then saw a different impact? Or what, yeah, what was the most surprising result you think you found? Yeah, well, two things. I would say first, um, I approached it seeing the wildebeest inputs as this kind of, as I said, a pulse input in right. time that was there. And after a few weeks, you don't see the carcasses anymore. They appear to be gone. Mm -hmm. But what we found through doing decomposition studies was that actually half of the weight, the dry mass of a wildebeest carcass is bone. And that's where 95% of the phosphorus and the carcass is. And those bones decompose over years. Wow. So even though the carcass to our visible eye at the surface of the water is gone after a few weeks or maybe months, um, the bones stay in the system for years. And because these mass drownings happen almost every year by the thousands, there's an incredible bed of bones at the bottom of the river, presumably slowly leaching out phosphorus into the system and calcium over time. So actually these periodic um, carcass inputs, I think are, are much longer in their influence and in their t temporal influence on the river ecosystem. That's super interesting. I was really interested to read when I read that paper too that you actually see biofilms growing on the bones mm -hmm. and that that's something that then fish are eating as well. I yeah. was, I'd never really thought about bones as being substrate yeah. for biofilms. As a stream ecologist, I'm like, oh yeah, rocks, a substrate, wood, all sorts of other types <laughs> of detritus potentially can be substrates for biofilms. And it was really interesting to see that bones can actually yeah. Yeah. play that role as well. But I will say the second thing that I found su very surprising and we're still trying to to tussle with actually a bit is um, so far with our measurements of um, biofilm growth and respiration on tiles and at, our, at the whole river level, we haven't really picked up an effect of wildebeest drownings and carcass inputs on what we think of as whole ecosystem function. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually see an increase in production or respiration in the at the river ecosystem level even when there are thousands of carcasses in the river. Wow. And this is really surprising and is a bit of a mystery for us and kind of is setting the stage for, our, I think, our next next stage of research in the system, trying yeah. to understand that. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. I would think that, that <laughs> Me ecosystem <too>. metabolism would, <laughs> really, would really change as a mm -hmm. result of those inputs. And huh. I think part of why it doesn't is because it's a river that already has 4,000 hippos defecating in it every day. And so it's, you know, it's about the context um, in which these carcass inputs are entering the river system. Right. And so do you think in some ways, potentially those hippo inputs might be, I was curious to see, and I think it's really interesting to think about this idea of like, there's these daily migrations and then you have these, maybe not so much pulse now <laughs> that yeah. you're thinking about these bones decomposing for long periods of time. But do you think that one type of input might be more important for ecosystem function than another or... How do you think about the balance? I guess that's the future direction is thinking yeah. about the balance of those two types. Yeah. And and one thing I, I will say is, um, <clears throat> you know, I say that when we don't, when we see a bunch of carcasses into the river, we don't see a response in ecosystem metabolism. But, um, and, and certainly my first interpretation of that was, oh, wow, maybe carcasses don't matter when you have so much hippo loading because mm -hmm. it's such a massive scale of loading. But another interpretation of that is that the wildebeest carcasses always matter and because their bones are always there and the bone maybe the bones play a, a significantly large role that whether the actual fresh carcasses is there or not doesn't matter because the bones are kind of always playing this role in fertilizing the system right yeah that's super interesting
Super cool. What was one of the most challenging parts of that study? It seems like in general, working in such an interesting area and with large animals, like I'm sure there's plenty of yeah. challenges. What was the hardest part in doing the wildebeest study? The hardest part is that they're they're fairly stochastic events. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they're difficult to predict when they're going to happen. You you need a crossing happening at a certain crossing point when the river is a certain level. And so you can't really plan your research around when a drowning is going to happen. You have to be a little bit opportunistic mm-hmm. and to take advantage of it and and and, and and on the other hand, one might not happen for months, so you kind of have to have other research going on that you're willing then to drop at a moment's notice when a drowning happens, and that's that was difficult. And then on a more practical side, um, litter bags turned out to be pretty difficult to do because um, we put out carcass litter bags. Right, yeah. I spent days, you know, preparing them so carefully and weighing every little piece and then put them out to come back the next day and find that crocodiles and Nile monitors had like plucked off oh, no. <laughs> about half of our carcass litter bags oh, overnight. No. And they just thought as we'd put out little goodie bags for them. So we had to then go get a big um, metal cage welded in town and redeploy litter bags inside of a cage. <laughs> wow. How big were, so I, I'm not sure, I, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with litter bags, these um, things that you put leaves into to decompose, well, often leaves yeah. to decompose in streams and then measure decomposition yeah. rates. But it's funny in my mind to think about a litter bag full of, <laughs> full of wildebeest. <laughs> so did you take just different parts of the wildebeest and put them in like small bags? Yeah. Like how big, how big was, were these? They were small. Bags? We used small bags. They mm-hmm. were um, maybe 10 by 10, you know, centimeters, um, centimeters and used part, different parts of the carcass. Although there, there has, my advisor has consistently pushed me to do a whole carcass litter bag. <laughs> um, we haven't worked out the logistics of how we will pull it out of the river to reweigh it on a regular basis. Yeah, that seems like it would be... <laughs> it's a matter of discussion. <laughs> a very difficult thing to do. Um, so obviously research has its challenges, but also it can be super enjoyable. So what do you feel like was the most fun part of the wildebeest drowning study? What was... I'm sure there are many highlights, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but what was... What really you did you feel like was the most fun part of doing that study? Um... I mean, I love field work and the field work of it, you know, to count the, although the, I will say the drownings are, are these tragic events that yeah. happen, you know, and that's something that once, especially once we first witnessed our first drowning actually happening, that's kind of not lost on you that it mm-hmm. is this really tragic, like on an individual scale loss oh, yeah. of life, but the ecological response to it is, um, is really beautiful and it's this exciting response of life to this influ- input of um, resources from death and surveying that uh, was really cool. So we would hire um, armed rangers to walk the riverbanks because riverbanks are actually kind of a, dif- a d- dangerous place to be right. in, in the sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and and we didn't have a lot of other opportunities to do those kinds of walks. And so we would walk, you know, these five-kilometer stretches, surveying carcasses and counting crocodiles and counting vultures, and um, and that was just really exciting to to be able to engage with the river in that way. Yeah, that's awesome. Something I, we take for for granted in North America where yeah. you can easily walk riverbanks, but they're they're harder to do in Kenya. Yeah, I know. I'm sure. I hadn't really thought about that as the riverside as being a really dangerous place to be working. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your hippo work as well. Um, I really found your study interesting where you went and um, looked at hippo ingestion and excretion in a zoo setting where it's easier to measure things yeah. like that and then also translated that into thinking about hippo effects on the Mara. So what was it like to actually work with captive hippos after you've seen, you know, you've seen them in their natural habitat? Was it, I'm just curious, like what that felt like, what that was like? 
Yeah, it was really fun because hippos in their natural setting are, are really dangerous and intimidating yeah. animals, <laughs> although I, I love them and find them charming. You know, they're always kind of watching them with one very cautious eye, mm -hmm. and of course you never want to be close to them. And uh, in the zoo, you know, each of them had names, and we got, <laughs> got to feed them apples, you know, through the cage, obviously, right. but um, it was really fun to kind of get to engage with hippos in that different, in a different way. Um, in a, a less, uh, uh, a more friendly way. Yeah, I no, that guess. makes sense. And it's interesting to think about, you know, I, I, it was interesting to read that paper and realize, yeah, there, it would be really hard to measure hippo excretion and ingestion in the wild. And, you know, I work on insects and yeah. fish and smaller things where you can do that. And it's yeah. easy to, you know, take them out of the stream and put them in a bucket yeah. or bag or whatever and <laughs> do those types of measurements. And it's yeah. interesting to think about zoos as a place where, you can do the, that type of research, especially yeah. with large animals, where you really couldn't do that in the wild. Yeah. Yeah, and I owe that inspiration to J.J. Weiss, who was um, a lab member of mine at the time. And, mm -hmm. and people in my lab have measured nutrient excretion um, from fish by putting them in a, kind of a container and measuring the water before and right. after. And I was bemoaning that this would be difficult to find a container big enough for a hippo. And <laughs> J.J. said, you know, the Milwaukee County Zoo hippo exhibit would be perfect for this, actually. And the, the folks at the zoo were really keen to be engaged. They thought it was was interesting and they were happy to have people help shovel out the hippo pool for I know, a few I, days. I loved the description in your methods of wheelbarrows just full of elephant, yeah. or not sorry not elephant of hippo poop. Yeah. It was just really it's just such a different scale to work and think about rivers on compared to I think those of us who work in either North America or South America yeah. or a lot of other rivers where you just don't have these large animals that play yeah. an important huge role in ecosystem yeah. function. I will say where we don't have them anymore. Yeah, that's true. I was I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Yeah. Like I found it really interesting in your wildebeest study when you talked about this idea that bison probably historically played a really yeah. big role in the North American landscape yeah. and rivers. And yeah. I was yeah, I was curious to hear your take on that and what you think how you think you, that reframes your what you think about rivers and yeah. other places that historically had these large migrations. Yeah, it's something I'm still learning a lot about. And I learned a lot about working on the wildebeest paper. You know, I found records talking about um, huge drownings of, of ten, you know, thousands of carcasses um, recorded by early explorers, mm -hmm. suggesting that this happened on a, uh, you know, maybe even close to annual basis, you know, fairly regular observations of this happening. And it's incredible to me to think that we had... Uh, you know, maybe near 30 million bison in the Western United States 250 years ago. I mean, that's not long. You know, we, no, I'm accustomed yeah. to about like, you know, Pleistocene megafaunal extinctions, and that was 10,000 years ago, which in evolutionary timescales and ecological timescales even is, you know, it's, it's not that long ago. Right. But it's still a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea that 250 years ago only we might have had regular inputs of large drownings in our rivers is really um, is really interesting to me, and it, it suggests that the rivers that we see now and what we think of as reference streams and reference conditions for rivers um, maybe is a, a shifted baseline from what it, it was not that long ago. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. I just finished reading Undaunted Courage, actually, about the Lewis and oh, Clark yeah. expedition. Uh -huh. and it was interesting to read some of their and hear more about the things that they observed when they saw the Western, when they were the white men seeing the Western U.S. Mm -hmm. for the first time. Um, and to just think about how different those systems look now in yeah. such a short time scale. It's definitely something important to keep in mind as ecologists when we think about, you know, what is sort of normal or baseline for yeah. a certain system to really think 
that things have undergone big changes in yeah. not a very long amount of time. Mm-hmm. So what ex- what research are you really excited to do next in the Mara or, or elsewhere, potentially? Um, what are sort of the, the next steps that you'd really like to take in, yeah. in your research? Um, well, we have um, a fair amount of data showing that these wildlife inputs are have a really important effect on the river food web, but we're still trying to understand the pathways through which those enter the food web, and I think that there's probably multiple pathways, and that, that, that probably varies seasonally, and I think there's some... Um, exciting work to be done there, understanding the influence of um, subsidy form and magnitude on secondary production. Um, I also uh, think that there's really interesting biogeochemical cycling happening within these hot spots of wildlife loading because animals tend to aggregate in time and space. And we right. see that with the hippo inputs in these hippo pools and with the carcass inputs because carcasses tend, well, they happen at crossings and then the carcasses aggregate at rocks and river bends, you get these aggregations of different sizes and we see um, that the size of the input, the concentration of the input influences kind of the fate of the nutrients in the system. But we have a lot of work to do, I think, to understand how that influences the actual biogeochemical cycling of those inputs. And I think that's really exciting. And, um, and then I think that, you know, we've, done a lot of work to understand the arrows going from the grassland into the river mm-hmm. and it would be cool to do some more work understanding the arrows going back out to the grasslands and we've started to do that a bit with avian scavengers right. and found that that's a really um, you know substantial transport back to the grasslands but I also um, imagine through aquatic insect emergence um, and probably some other interesting um terrestrial animal vectors like hyenas and mongoose that there's um, some other really interesting pathways to study. Yeah, it's interesting It's interesting to think about the whole food web effect of these carcasses. Do you see um, like peaks in insect emergence or do you see fish aggregations around those big carcass yeah. buildups at all? Or? Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, yes, although yeah. we haven't measured it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll see fish feeding, you know, you can see the activity under the water, right. fish, crocodiles, crocodiles Nile yeah. monitors coming in and really focusing on those aggregations. And one of the interesting phenomena we have observed is that um, about two weeks-ish after the carcasses, you know, after the drowning has occurred, um, you'll see big blooms of maggots in the river. Oh, interesting. And you actually will, see, you know, can put a net in the water and scoop out maggots because so many are floating downstream. <laughs> Everyone's favorite type of field work. <laughs> because the carcasses have just been colonized by so many insects. Yeah. And we have some work that um, we're, we're working on um, publishing right now, looking at uh, scavenger succession on the carcasses, oh, which is mostly um, terrestrial scavengers, because mm-hmm. that's what would, it's been easier to see these game cameras mm-hmm. to observe that. And um, we see these really interesting succession patterns, where first you get... Um, you know, smaller vulture, you have vultures coming in, marabou storks, then you start to get um, near the latter parts, sacred ibis and mongoose, which are feeding on the insects that have colonized the carcasses. And so um, I think there's just some really interesting stories to be told there. Yeah, that's awesome. uh, We'll be looking forward to hearing what comes (laughs) next for sure. Um, So one of the things that we're starting to do a little bit more on the Making Waves podcast is to also talk about the scientists behind the science a little bit. And so I was curious to ask you some questions about you as a scientist. So did you always know you wanted to be a scientist or what was your path towards becoming an ecologist? 
Um, I call it the scenic route. <laughs> I no, I didn't know. I, I didn't always know that. I, I knew that I loved being outside, mm-hmm. and um, and I still love being outside. That's kind of what I like to do. Um, and I don't. I think it just took me a while to really realize that that could be my career. Could right. be being outside and learning about the natural world. Um, so I, I started thinking maybe I wanted to go into um, medical school and be a doctor and. So I was a biology major, and that um, first gave me some experience doing field research. And um, but it, it took me a while doing field research and doing my master's to to kind of find what I felt was my place in the field. Well, I'm glad you made it here. <laughs> you're definitely an inspiration to many of us. Um, and what do you like to do when you're not doing science? What do you do in your free time? Um, well, like I said, I like to be outside. So um, going hiking or fishing or being on water. Um, I also now have a daughter, a two and a half year old oh, daughter. Awesome. So um, you know, doing things with her and kind of introducing her to the outdoors. And she loves to be outside, too. Um, this is actually her second field season in the Mara oh, awesome. this past year. So um, she she really loves to be outside. So that's been fun. It's a whole new um, opportunity to learn about and experience the natural world through her eyes. That's great. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Amanda. It's been great to hear more about your research. I'm really looking yeah. forward to hearing about what comes next. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And again, this has been your podcast host, Erin Larson, with the Making Waves podcast, joined by Amanda Sobolewski. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast, brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. For more info on this speaker, the Making Waves podcast, or the Society in general, please visit us on the web at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune in next time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.